0: Live from Northern California, it's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts.
1: Yeah, you forgot to mention the guy getting over a cold. He's that, too. Hey, good afternoon. Welcome. Good to have you with us for this Wednesday, the 14th of December, we're counting down the clock, aren't we? Christmas is going to be upon us before we know it. With we'll about ten. <laughs> <coughs> pardon me, 11 days away. And I apologize. I'm going to try my best not to cough in your ear tonight. I know that's rude, but boy, this little tickle has just been it, it, has, it has moved in for the long haul. So <laughs> please be uh, be patient with me if you would, as I know you, you typically are just putting up with me. In any event, got a lot to talk about tonight. A little bit later on, Pete Peterson is going to join us. He is the dean of the Pepperdine School of Public Policy. There's Couple of things afoot here in California that are are undoubtedly going to create more political intrigue and uh, undoubtedly uh, another battle. Royale. And uh, we'll talk a bit about what that is coming up later on in the program tonight. Also want to remind you, if you have not yet given your gift in support of the Bay Area Rescue Mission, there is not only plenty of time, but plenty of need. We announced on the program couple of weeks ago now that um, we had partnered with the bay area rescue mission in hopes of providing meals for some one thousand families by providing these boxes of hope enough food to feed the average family of five for multiple days and uh, we're well on our way but we've still got a ways to go in fact the most recent numbers that i looked at um, we are about 180 families shy of our goal and uh, right now with that limited grant challenge, your gift will be doubled when you... uh stand with the bay area rescue mission if you were to give a gift today of 250 dollars you would be able to literally provide meals for 10 of the remaining 100 and family and 180 families that we're looking to uh, to adopt tonight so give your gift online go to kfax.com look for the bay area rescue mission banner at the top of our homepage. again at Mm kfax.com
2: O oh, little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. Above thy deep and dreamless
1: sleep, the silent stars goodness. Well, not only certainly a slice out of uh, biblical history, but a slice out of modern day events. As you can experience Bethlehem A.D. coming to the peninsula beginning the uh, the 21st of this month. Bethlehem A.D. now in its 30th year. A living recreation of the village of Bethlehem on the night of that first Christmas. You'll have a chance to walk through the village, interact with the colorful, costumed townsfolk who are cooking, creating pottery, in the midst of buying and selling in the marketplace and giving themselves accounts to the census taker. You'll also get a chance to observe and mingle with Roman centurions on horseback while sages and scholars discuss scripture at the synagogue. It is an incredible experience, and particularly so for children who particularly and especially love seeing the live sheep, camels. Yeah, I said camels, camels, Brahma bulls, llamas and donkeys wandering through the village. You'll never believe it's actually happening in Redwood City and not the <laughs> not the historical Bethlehem. Here to tell us more for 30 years in a row, Paula Dresden, the creative director of Bethlehem A.D. Paula, Merry Christmas to you.
3: Hello, Craig, and Merry Christmas to you, too, and to all of our listeners. It's an exciting year for us. It's going to be our 30th yet final year on the lot that we currently have been using. So um, we're hoping to have a really grand um, show of it. <laughs> we're doing our very best to make everything perfect for our visitors. Uh, we're going to have um, Gabriel at the corner uh, really announcing uh, how Jesus will be, the sign would be that Jesus will be wrapped in swaddling cloth, which is an interesting sign when you look more into it. And then uh, wise men will be there. They are um, dignitaries of Redwood City. They're the fire chief and uh Chief of Police, etc., and um, so it's just a really festive, wonderful time where it all culminates at the manger, and we can actually feel the Holy Spirit descend on people as they worship, as as we all join in to worship. The Living God, Paula.
1: Take us back for a moment, if you would. Uh, Thirty years ago, boy, that's a that's a pretty incredible legacy. And I just want to get a sense of kind of the the original vision, because having been to Bethlehem, AD, and any of our listeners that have experienced this, many folks who, in fact, kind of mark this as the the official start of their family uh, Christmas celebration. I mean, uh, to to come up with a little bit of a tableau. Maybe a nice, quaint idea to recreate, <laughs> to, to the greatest degree of detail possible, Bethlehem. Wow. I mean, talk about a sense of vision. Give us, give us some, a little bit of the background of the, of the original dream and how all this was birthed.
3: Well, it all happened when a friend of mine took his son to a a street called Candy Cane Lane here in Redwood City, and what the people do there is they dress up their houses and they deck it out with lights and everything, and it's all about Santa and and everything that's presents and all that. So my friend's son said to him in 1992, he said, Dad, we should have a drive-by nativity because, you know, you drive by these houses. And he thought about that, and he, got, he really got caught up in the idea and said, okay, we're going to do that. So he came back to our had a little Bible study, and he presented this idea. And I thought, oh, you know, the world doesn't need another nativity scene. I was sort of against it, I'll be honest. But um, and then he said, well, what we'll do is we'll cover the whole church with canvas, and then we'll put a bunch of sand in the parking lot, and we'll have the scene there. I was like, oh, my goodness. Um, and I pointed to a vacant a lot across the street from the church. I said, well, let's ask the people who own that if we could use that lot. It seems more like more natural setting. So he did. He went and asked these people, and it turned out to be um, a dentist from San Francisco. And at first he said no. And then I said, well, go back and ask him again. So he went back, and he said yes the second time. And so... Um, what the dentist did was he put up a fence, a cyclone fence, all around the lot, which is about three-quarters of an acre, and um, we cleaned out all the old garbage and stuff, and we started building the, uh, the the town. Now, what happened is the owner came to Bethlehem that year and was so impressed by what we did. I mean, we built a manger, and we had everything just really nicely done, and... Um, so he was happy about it, and it turns out he was watching Johnny Carson with his wife that very next year, and he dropped. He turned over and dropped dead. So his wife since then had been giving us the use of that property year after year in memory of her husband. <clears throat> then at some point... Uh, The church, uh, well, what happened was the city wanted to take it from this woman by eminent domain, and she said, well, I'd like to give the church first refusal. And so the church bought it then, and they've owned it ever since for about 15 years. So uh, now what's happened is, and we built this incredible um, scene where we had angels on the roof of the church, and, I mean, it really is... Quite spectacular. You, I try to bring all the aspects of what may have been happening in Bethlehem on the night of the birth of Christ, showing a Roman presence, showing people who believe, showing uh, rabbis in the synagogue discussing. You know, well, how could a how could a baby be born with <clears throat> a Messiah never slumbers nor sleep? That baby sleeping over there. You know, stuff like that. It's a kind of fun stuff to think about and to talk about, and, and so. What we do is we present everything at once, and the the visitor walks through and takes from it what they will. So it's not anyone forcing anything down your throat or cr- cracking your head open with a Bible. It's just <laughs> it's just a presentation of what daily life would have been like back then. And um, the Lord's been very faithful in in uh, granting us the power of the Holy Spirit at the end. So we're very grateful.
1: This is, uh, of course, as I mentioned, uh, really become a annual tradition for uh, families, not only across the peninsula, but people come from all over the state to experience yes. this. And it is literally a living tableau um, that is done with a lot of hard work by volunteers that take weeks, months preparing for this every year. And uh, you get a chance to experience Bethlehem A.D. for yourself coming uh, December 21, 22 and 23. It'll be six to nine. 9 p.m. Rain or shine, nightly. It's about a 20-minute walk through. Um, of course, if uh, you happen to have a family member who is uh, handicapped or needs a little bit of help, there will be golf carts available that uh, will help bring them through. And uh, this is free, by the way, and open to the public. They certainly appreciate donations to help support the uh, the expenditures related to this experience. And as Paula points out, this is really an opportunity to uh, to get a chance to to experience what it must have been like on that first christmas and um, it is not only a wonderful way to welcome in the christmas season uh, but certainly a wonderful outreach tool as well uh, a silent witness in many regards but a very powerful one nevertheless paula if folks want to get more information can they can they reserve uh, ahead of time if they've got uh, uh, somebody in the in the family that needs a little bit of help how's all that work
3: uh, how it works is uh, it's a first-come, first-served basis. If you do have a disabled person or elderly person, they can come straight to the church parking lot. And that information is on our website, BethlehemAD.com. And um, so that would be one option. They would just wait in the parking lot and tell an attendant that they would like to have a golf cart ride. And then the other thing that we offer is free parking for all the visitors at 1250 Veterans, which is the... Kaiser Permanente Garage, and we have a free shuttle system running back and forth. Just turns out that these shuttles happen to be Mercedes Benz vans. you get a nice ride <laughs> and the people doing it are so sweet and so that's that's how we are able to accommodate parking uh, you know I- interests because it is kind of hard to park around here
1: yeah yeah certainly uh, downtown redwood city gets busy but uh, you can you can uh, be able to uh, manage all the details by going to the website bethlehemad.com that's bethlehemad.com and uh visit the town of bethlehem and experience that very first christmas 1300 middlefield road look for the searchlights in redwood city and uh, every year of course paula we get a chance to visit we so much appreciate your vision your leadership your hard work down through all of these years and we invite you to invite our listeners to come on out and experience for themselves bethlehem ad
3: Thank you so much. And just so you know, uh, we will be uh, streaming live uh, each night's performance, and you can see that, of course, all over the world. We have people in Israel and in Germany who tune in.
1: If you've never been, you need to go. I I mean, as I say, many families make this a part of sort of the official start of their their, uh, holiday season on the 21st of December. Again, running 21, 22, and 23 of December from 6 to 9.30 p.m. nightly, rain or shine. Uh, But along with that, as I say, at least once, everybody in the Bay Area needs to experience Bethlehem AD. On the web at BethlehemAD.com. That's BethlehemAD.com. Our to to creative director Paula Dresden for that update.
2: Oh,
3: little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie
2: above thy deep
0: How bad? to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Well, if
1: you're like me and you've been following what's been going on on Wall Street and the world of money, your own pocketbook undoubtedly, you may get the sense that it's starting to feel a bit like we're going to be set up for a pretty rough 2023, as if to say that 2022 hasn't been that difficult with runaway inflation numbers we haven't experienced since the Jimmy Carter days. My goodness, that's well over 40 years ago. Uh, Today, the uh, Federal Open Market Committee announcing that there's yet another rate hike in the offing. Central bank raising rates by a half a percentage point, which is probably better than the usual of 75 basis points that we've seen, <coughs> pardon me, over the last three rounds. Fed Chair Jerome Powell says more data is needed before the Fed would change its view of inflation. That means they anticipate ongoing increases it will continue to be necessary to get. Inflation back to the 2% goal. Wow, that means um, not only a tough road ahead for the United States, but particularly particularly those of us that live here, <coughs> pardon me and call California home. And there's a number of levels at which finances of the state might become more and more problematic. We're going to talk about one of the more controversial aspects in a moment. But meanwhile, with a comment and some insight, we're joined by Pete Peterson, Dean of the Pepperdine School of Public Policy and Senior Fellow with the Davenport Institute at Pepperdine University. And Pete, always great to have you with us. Merry Christmas.
2: And Merry Christmas to you, Craig. Always good to be with you.
1: I I don't want to turn the program into a financial... (coughs) financial advice show, per se. Uh, But I I think it it bears pointing out that, as I say, uh, the Federal Open Market Committee feels as if more rate hikes are necessary. They handed down yet the fourth one in a row, and um, at least from the comments made by Jerome Powell, no real end in sight. How problematic do you see this from a public policy standpoint? In so far as the impact on a state like California, where my goodness, real estate is outrageous to begin with, let alone now to add to it outrageous interest rates. Now, folks that bought real estate in California twenty, thirty years ago know that you know eight, nine percent at that time wasn't all that unusual in the nineteen seventies or early 80s, it had reached up to almost 13% for a home loan, Paris, the thought. But I have to wonder, this is going to perhaps have a very chilling effect on real estate in California for some time to come, no?
2: No, you're absolutely right, Craig. And you've, you've put your finger on the issue that really could be problematic for California. Uh, we've already seen the impact of the increasing interest rates on the softening of the broader housing market nationally. And even down here in Southern California, we've seen some of the markets that have seemed rather impervious to... Uh, broader economic trends in the country begin to at least flatten out a bit. I'm talking about neighborhoods of uh, or suburbs of Los Angeles and Santa Monica and out in the San Fernando Valley, ones that have really been uh, exploding over the last decade. Um, but we are we are beginning to see some flattening of prices, houses on the markets for longer than usual, and uh, really for the first time we're seeing uh, those uh, sellers uh, begin to, after they post their uh, house for sale, begin to wind back on some of their initial asking prices. And of course, that all has ramifications for uh, state taxes, it has ramifications for um, those that are uh seeking to move to different areas of the state where we do see a lot of intra-state movement and that becomes more problematic when the housing market uh, uh gets this um, really kind of uh, fragile
1: and you, when you look at it from an affordability standpoint, I mean, this is really a double-edged sword. As you point out, some of the more hotter markets like Southern California, like the Bay Area, are beginning to cool a little bit. There's been long talk about the need for a little bit of a, a correction, so to speak, or to get a little bit of the this out of the real estate market. That That's a good thing, in a sense, unless you uh, you know re- <coughs> recently bought and now are looking at a, a, a drop in your equity as opposed to what had been historically. Historically, here in California for at least the last decade seemingly a uh, never end to the climb of equity but you know while that might represent an easing in prices the cost to get in has gone up exponentially and that means you're going to be paying more and paying longer so if you thought it was painful to make that monthly you know three four five thousand dollar a month house payment now imagine when an even larger percentage of that is not going to the principal but simply going to interest, which means this whole issue of affordability in a state like California has got to, at some point, Pete, reach kind of critical mass here in the sense that if fewer and fewer people can afford to live in this state, then how does this state's future, uh, you know, have, have any sense of promise to it? You know,
2: you, again, you're raising very good points about the impact, uh, the specific impact of interest rates on housing Uh, the fact that even as uh, prices may be softening, the the reason that's happening is because not many people, not as many people are buying or coming into the market because they understand that actually a $400,000 home Uh, with high interest rates may be more expensive on a monthly basis than a half a million dollar home with lower interest rates. And understanding that with that, so much more of what you're paying on a monthly basis is actually not going to principal, but is going to interest. It it does really make one wonder uh, what we're going to see here in the coming year. And of course, many of the markets that we saw hit most uh, in, a, in a most aggressive way when we think back over the uh, Great Recession in 2009 and 2010 were the markets that you might say were in the hinterlands down here in Southern California would be out of Riverside County or San Bernardino County uh, and one wonders whether we're going to see that same kind of impact here which of course hits those at the lower rungs of the income ladder and uh, and again, makes it even less attractive to come into the state. For those that might be thinking about it,
1: well, moreover, of purchasing a purchasing a home, the affordability of same is out of the reach of more and more people, and yet, nevertheless, they work here, they live here, they need to reside here. That means more pressure on the rental market, and uh, you know, there becomes another problematic issue that you've either got on one hand landlords that have taken advantage of the demand, and you see the cost for rent, my goodness, just skyrocketing to ridiculous degrees and then some cities responding in kind by saying, "Okay, we're going to now put very draconian rental controls in that that for some folks make the matter of being in the the uh, the rental business, be it for single family homes or, you know, smaller units, maybe a duplex, something of that sort, less and less attractive because there are so many regulations and such difficulty even in in a post-COVID environment related to like evictions that if you have fewer people that want to be in the rental business, I mean, doesn't this end up spelling a pretty disastrous housing situation at a time in an estate where there is such a amount of demand on housing that we can't even keep track?
2: Yeah, that's right. And of course, when we think about the rental market as well, um, the rental market is in, at least in part set by what the comparable uh, price would be on a monthly basis to buy a home. And as that rate is going up, chances are, unless we're going to build more because we still have some supply and demand issues, uh, we we will see the the cost for monthly rents going up as well. So, again, you know, you're in this place where California has long had these issues around the cost of living and housing making up such a large part of that um you know, we obviously are finding ourselves now that in a state where, as I mentioned before, there had been a fair amount of uh, in-state migration, if you will, that has really been halted by this. People get locked into their homes because of those low interest rates, or they're just going to look outside the state for something that uh, really will, at least on the, on the sticker price of the home, uh, provide a lot more.
1: I'm going to shift the conversation slightly here. If you've just joined us, visiting with us today is the dean of the Pepperdine School of Public Policy, Pete Peterson. We've been talking about the announcement made by the Federal Open Market Committee, the Reserve, announcing that there is yet another rate hike coming our way, this time um, 50 basis points or half a percent. All of it adds up after a while and the impact on housing. But I also want to shift to some broader issues. We've seen, for example, in recent months and number of very large employers in this state, be it Facebook, Oracle, Twitter, on the list goes, reducing staff. Then we add to that the high cost of not just housing, but inflation's impact and everything from what you pay at the, the grocery store to what you pay at the pump. That means more pressure on the tax base in California, as the state is seeing less revenue coming in from property taxes, less revenue coming in from employment taxes. So, you would think at a time like this, when there is so much economic uncertainty going on for not just the nation, but specifically a state like California, that now would be time to be very cautious about spending and not to open up potential economic Pandora's box. But oh no, in California, if there's a wrong way to do it, we figure out just exactly how. When we come back I want to talk about a controversial proposal that um, while on the surface attempting to right a wrong may end up creating economic turmoil in the state and infighting the likes of which we haven't seen perhaps in any of our adult memories. Pete Peterson, Dean of the Pepperdine School of Public Policy. Pete, I'm going to ask you to stay on for another segment. We're going to come back with more of our discussion, talk about this controversial proposal, and just how heated the debate may come as this edition of Lifeline continues.
0: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Now, how does
1: that man know that we're talking to Pete Peterson, <laughs> who's the dean of public policy at Pepperdine University? It must have uh, six cents or something. At any rate, welcome back to the program. Pete Peterson is indeed with us today. He's also the senior fellow at the Davenport Institute at Pepperdine University. We're talking about flawed public policy, and uh, certainly that's plenty plenty of that to go around. Now, you know, historically, the United States... I think generally speaking, compared to many other countries, it's got a pretty good track record, though down through our history, we have made mistakes and pretty significant ones. But along with that, in our attempt to try and right wrongs. I think sometimes we get overcome by a sense of guilt and shame, and we allow that to kind of hang on and linger, and it perhaps to some degrees clouds our ability to really think clearly. Now. The topic we're about to briefly discuss here is, to be sure, an extremely controversial one. That is the issue of reparations for descendants of people that had been enslaved here in the United States since our founding days. Now, as we know, the Emancipation Proclamation changed all that, although Jim Crow laws in the South attempted to kind of undo much of the, 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 if not the letter of the Emancipation Proclamation, at least the spirit of it all. And it's raised a question, and that is how have future subsequent generations suffered as the results of the previous policies of this nation and how we how can we do right? How can we amend for our wrongs? And 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 Pete, well, I think that's very laudable. That there's that sense of of sensitivity. And and to be sure, African Americans living in this country have been dealt a difficult hand. I mean, we we you know, if you, if we're going to be honest about history, I think we have to admit that. At the same token, when we start to talk about the issue of reparations. And we're talking about it in the context of not changing public policy, but changing fiscal policy by saying, we, we owe you, here's a check. The big question that I have to ask is this. If we want to talk about people groups that down through the history of this nation um, have been on the, the um, receiving side of some brutal policy, where does it end? In other words, do we not begin open up a Pandora's box if we say that African Americans who have been on the receiving side of bad policy when it relates to slave ownership in this country, need reparations. But then I can go back and say, okay, well, what about the Japanese that we interred during World War II? What about the Chinese that were basically enslaved to help build the railroads and work in the mines here in California during the gold rush? What about a Mexican-Americans, whom this territory actually used to at one time belong to Mexico? What about Native Americans? I mean, at some point, you have to wonder, how deep does our guilt go? But along with that, how deep do they think our pocketbooks go to be able to fairly, and I don't even know how you come up with that number, fairly compensate people?
2: Well, of course, this is all based on a task force that Governor Newsom assembled and has been working throughout 2022, will continue its deliberations in 2023. It involves a number of current state legislators, both Assembly Men and women, as well as state senators, and has engaged a number of economists, scholars, and academics in the work of trying to get at these two significant questions uh, for a policy like this, which would be who qualifies, right? California has never had slavery Within its state boundaries,
1: we, well, in and fact, so, we, we were, didn't even become a a state until uh, what eighteen fifty something. I have to go back and look 1850, at my eighteen fifty. eighteen
2: fifty. And and in that, um, you know, many of the deliberations <laughs> and why it took so long to become a state had to do with whether we were going to be a slave state or free. And obviously, we ended up as a slave as a free state. Now, as you say, Craig, this is not to say that there has not been. Racism, there has not been the effects of racism when we think about uh, redlining, when we think about some aspects of uh, public safety and, uh, and incarceration and the uh, imbalanced treatment, uh, the racist treatment, frankly, of blacks in the state of California. But how we then evaluate who qualifies, uh, what about those who have suffered racial treatment but are not the descendants of slaves? This is one of the criteria that they're discussing. Uh, And then the second major question, of course, is if you do deem that come to some sort of resolution on who should qualify, then how much should they be owed? And this opens up, as you pointed to before, a a Pandora's box of of, uh, public policy issues. I think back to uh, the issues uh, that sprung out of you might remember that uh, a number of nonprofits and charities were sprung up after 9-11 to support the victims, a number of deliberations and discussions about who should qualify for benefits and what is the value of a human life. All those things were done, but not with taxpayer dollars. Uh, What's being discussed by this task force uh, could easily get into the multiple Uh, billions of dollars, depending on who qualifies and how much they're to be paid out. Now, these are just public policy questions. I think it's important to point out that there there really does promise to be a significant constitutional question here. Uh, One of the assembly members, I'd note, uh, Reggie Jones-Sawyer, who's an assemblyman, uh, said, and I quote, We're not the Supreme Court, we're only commissioners, and we serve at the will of the deployment agent, in this case, the governor. Well, they may not be uh, the Supreme Court, but there's little doubt that race based uh, awards of public benefits in this uh, proposal, however, it is resolved. Uh, is bound for the Supreme Court in some way, shape, or form.
1: Well, undoubtedly so. I mean, first off, you've got the whole issue of how do you come up with a fair and equitable number? Secondarily, the question comes, and then you know some people are going to raise this question, well, why are my tax dollars going to compensate somebody today for the sins of people that go back well over 150 years? Others would even argue, hey, my family wasn't even in this country at the time all this began. We didn't come right. until, you know, immigration started in the 20- 20th century. I mean, there's just a whole plethora of, of undoubtable uh, questions that are going to be raised, not least of which the one that I addressed to a moment ago or, or, or touched upon a moment ago, Pete, and that is if we head down this road, and I'm not saying that we don't need to, to take a serious look at, at the issue of right. the mistakes of the past, but if you start to head down this road and say, well, the only fair, equitable way is by writing a check, then at what point do we say – Who's eligible and who isn't, not only in this related issue, but how many people groups down through our history have been on the receiving end of bad public policy that could also make the argument, hey, what about me, too? And then at some point you have to say to yourself, if we open up this Pandora's box, it could create an economic disaster for this state and any other states that would attempt to follow.
2: Now, again, I think it is worth pointing out that we do have at least some precedent with the Japanese who were interned, and this was uh, addressed by none other than uh, the great President Reagan.
1: Ronald Reagan, that's right. Uh, Back
2: in the late 80s, uh, there were um, checks in the amount of reparations of $20,000 per uh, person who had been interned and and, uh, may have been, relatives of those who obviously uh, during uh, World War II were interned by the federal government. Um, again, that was the federal government responding to a, a federal policy. How do we think about slavery in a state that, or the reparations due in part because of slavery in a state that didn't happen, that it didn't occur? And even when it did, it was a, a federal issue and not a a state issue.
1: Well, uh, moreover, let me let me point out that going back as you aptly point out in the case of the Reagan administration in addressing this issue only required that we go back 40 something years, the ability right. to prove that you are indeed a, a a direct individual who had been interned or the descendant of some uh, one was easy to track historically. This is going back 150-something years. All of a sudden now, some of the lines here begin begin to blur. And as I point out, you know, the federal government stepping in and saying, okay, we're going to write, you know, a few hundreds, maybe thousands of checks at 40 grand each. I mean, when you look at this broader issue, how do you yep. put a dollar value on human life, number one, and and where does it stop? I mean, if we try to atone for every single sin of the past and every bit of atonement um, comes with a price tag attached to it, um, you know, we could easily bankrupt the state or the country.
2: You know, that you're absolutely right to point out really the the lack of boundaries that we're seeing. You know, uh, one of the proposals as far as those who should be paid reparations are those who have been in prison. And one of the points in California and one of the points that's being driven home is that there's a there's a belief that almost anyone in prison, whether guilty or or uh, provably innocent, should be paid some form of reparations. Um, so, you know, those that are uh, to, to that first question of who would qualify for this, uh, you know, they're, they're really going in a number of different directions. And again, once you move beyond the question of who qualifies, then the question of how much. And to your point, the precedent it might set uh, for other initiatives like this, uh, and again happening at the state level, is, uh, is certainly very concerning.
1: Well, no doubt we're going to be talking more about this in uh, the coming months as uh, California grapples with this issue. And my, my, if California uh, is looking at this issue, uh, imagine the states in the South and the challenges that they are going to have to be uh, facing to try. And and, again, uh, notably and and correctly, so right a serious wrong. The question is, I guess, at the end of the day, uh, whether or not this is the best approach and at what juncture do we. You say, okay, this person qualifies, that person doesn't. And if it's everybody, wow. Yeah. It get quite interesting. Pete Peterson is the dean of the Pepperdine School of Public Policy, and, and Pete, as we wrestle through all of these questions, from economic policies to, to uh, parity for people that have been injured um, the just day-to-day policy that it comes about at the state level or even at the local municipality level it's clear that we need um, people that are of uh, sound mind and correct heart and intention and 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 really have a, a sense of, of the best interest of the people of California when they engage in these policies and and training people in all of those um, arenas is really a big part of it exactly why the Pepperdine School of Public Policy exists.
2: That's right, Craig. You know, we we started with a unique mission. We're now in our 25th anniversary year, and as one of the very few of these graduate policy schools based at a Christian university, uh, but also one that sees the world, whether it's in economics or America's role in the world, uh, issues like the importance of religious liberty, uh, one of the phrases that we say is we see public policy differently from here, and that remains the case even after these 25 years. So preparing students uh, for roles in local government all the way up to the state government and Capitol Hill uh, is is the work that we do. And uh, the application period for next fall and our master's program has opened. And I certainly welcome folks to uh, either refer someone over who they're maybe thinking about graduate school or just one of your listeners who's thinking about it uh, for himself or herself to go to publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu and go to the Apply page and can find out more about the scholarships we offer, uh, particularly to students of faith, uh, because that really is an important part of our overall graduate program
1: and we are certainly entering into a a time in um, our life here in california and in the nation where uh, solid thinkers in the arena of public policy becoming more and more critical than per- perhaps historically ever before information on the web publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu that's publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu Our well, thanks to pete peterson dean of the pepperdine school of public policy for that update 550 from KFAX
0: And now back to Lifeline with
1: Craig Ross. All right, welcome back to the conversation, boy. That's going to be a controversial uh, bit of a challenge as they work through that whole reparations thing, isn't it? My goodness. I mean, as I say, if we start to look at all the <laughs> all the issues down through the years of all the people groups. Wow. All right, I want to uh, turn the corner to um, christmas and for so many families this year we talked about financial circumstances going on in the state of california related to inflation and the cost of housing many families are struggling this year struggling in ways in which they haven't experienced perhaps since the downturn of 2008 2009 and this is creating some very uncomfortable circumstances for families that are being forced to make tough decisions no family living in california or or anywhere for that matter should have to decide between food and paying the rent or um, paying the electric bill to keep the lights on and the heat going and the core needs of the family but sadly more and more cases are exactly that And so, you know, you come down to deciding, well, if we can't have, if we're not going to eat steak, we'll have to eat hamburger. If we can't do hamburger, it's going to have to be mac and cheese. Bay Area Rescue Mission, again this year, is providing meals to over a 1,000 of these needy families here in the Bay Area. This is in addition to the thousands of meals that they will directly provide people um, at the the facility there um, during Christmas week. And uh, we have teamed up with them yet once again this year to make sure that every one of those families that have signed up to receive a box of hope, this is a box that's filled with enough food that will get the average family of five, Along for about a week's worth of meals and can be a a real blessing to needy families, particularly at Christmas. Um, Right now, we are, according to the latest numbers, um, about 180 families shy of the goal of 1,000 families. And uh, roughly what that translates into, maybe you're somebody right now that would come along and because of the limited time grant challenge, um, essentially adopt 10 families. A $250 gift with the matching grant will do just that. A $250 gift will make sure that 10 Bay Area families do not go without this Christmas. And uh, if you can't give a $250 gift, maybe you can give a $100 gift again with a matching grant that doubles your gift. That means four needy families will receive this box of hope at Christmas. Want to encourage you to go online to kfax.com. You can easily and securely give your gifts there. That's at kfax.com or you want to give a call right now. We can uh, take your pledge over the phone at triple eight three six seven five three two nine. That's 8883675329. We need enough to close the gap and make sure that all 1000 families are fed. So far we're just shy of that by about 180 families the matching grant means your gift will be doubled when you go online to kfax.com and click on the bay area rescue mission banner at the top of our homepage. again at kfax.com we appreciate so much your loving and caring and standing with the bay area rescue mission and needy families across the bay area at this time of year kfax.com click on the bay area rescue mission banner at the top of our homepage.